In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Goose. It's all, it was always goose. My grandmother would pluck the geese. My grandfather would break it down and either smoke it over the fire or just toss it in some water and make a stew out of it with some root vegetables. Anahuinao, which is like a dumpling, and then just serve it to us. It was like a long process, like six-hour process. Eh? So in that time, like I was able to go play outside with my cousins and just be kids, right? And then come back and have this amazing goose stew that smelt of fire. It was just made with like so much love. When Scott Eiserhoff thinks about food, he thinks about his grandparents. As a child, he would often visit them in northern Ontario. And now that Scott is a chef, he revisits memories of his kukum and mushum every day through his food. Food brings us together, but it can also take us back in time. One bite of that sweet strawberry brings you back to your mother's garden. Or that fried moose meat warming your belly reminds you of your favorite uncle. And take a jam-filled bite of that perfectly golden bannock and you see your smiling granny's face. For many Indigenous people, food memories are intricately tied to family, community, and culture. Danse Anin, Buju. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. I think the stories really connect the dishes with the, the audience, right? When they sit down and they hear the story of this food. And if it's elders, they'll eat this dish. And like, I had an elder tell me, like, thank you. You brought me back to my childhood with my mushroom. Chef Scott Eiserhoff's food memories inspire the dishes he makes today and gives his customers a little taste of home. You're going to make a cuisine that's never been tapped into before because it represents your past, your ancestors' past, your parents' past, and it's connecting to the generations ahead of us. Chef Patrick Anderson teaches chefs-to-be that making Indigenous cuisine can connect them to their ancestors. A lot of our foods came from the commodity food program in the U.S., which was the government food subsidy program. A lot of canned vegetables, canned fruits, um, canned meats, powdered milk, you know, big giant gallon jugs of corn syrup. Growing up, Sean Sherman's dinner table didn't often include traditional food. But today, the chef is changing that by changing the industry. Today on Radio Indigenous, how these Indigenous chefs are creating cultural connections through food. One of Scott Eiserhoff's favorite memories is of watching his grandparents make goose stew. Food holds memory for the Cree chef and owner of Papischow, a food and education business in Edmonton. 
And whether it's in his cooking classes or in his tasty takeout cuisine, Scott infuses his memories into his cooking. Welcome to Unreserved, Scott. Thank you for having me. Watch you. Did you grow up with your grandparents or you just spent a lot of time with them? I spent a lot of time with them. I grew up in Timmins, Ontario, and um, my mother would always take me up to Attawapskid. That's when airfare was cheap. <laughs> so we'd go up like once a year. And every time we'd eat, it'd be around the dinner table. It would always be in gatherings of like our family. And that, that signified like the huge importance of how important food is and just eating together and just being together, right? Enjoying each yeah. other's time and talking about stories. Hearing the elders talk about stories too while eating is amazing. Plus all the anti-laughter. <laughs> and that's always just, I always hear my aunts laughing when I think of all these food memories. Mm. And is that where you um, began your interest in, in food and in making food? Uh, I would say so, yes. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated high school. So, but like I would always remember all these memories and I'd watch David Wolfman on the, <laughs> table, on the television. So I was like, I'll become a chef. <laughs> just that's, a, that's an adorable image, watching you, watching Chef David Wolfman, who, of course, for people who don't know, is one of the um, first Indigenous chefs to, uh, to, to um, make, a, make his own path here in, in Turtle Island. Um, could you share an example of a dish that you created that was inspired by something from your childhood? Yeah, so like every dish that we come up with, like there's many dishes that I love, especially with like the corn mush with like tongue. I remember seeing my family eating tongue, like moose tongue and marrow, you know. As a kid, it it's, it grosses you out. So I, I never really partook up until now. Like I really want to experience this. So yeah, like goose and dumplings with some roasted root vegetables. That is a dish that's like really close to my heart. It's really like... One of the first dishes that I've done, I always tear up when I tell these stories because I get so much joy when I can cook this food and just really remember like just being out on the land as a kid, right? Just watching mm -hmm. and learning. And like also like that is our indigenous teachings, like watching. If you want to learn something, you got to watch, right? Learn hands on. And I'm very grateful for all the stories that were gifted to me because I can apply it into the dishes we do. Mm -hmm. What did your experience, uh, you know, when, when you grew up and decided you wanted to be a chef, uh, you went to culinary school. Um, what was that like for you? It was, a, it was a, like a culture shock. Mm. I couldn't really relate to the food, right? I could, I could relate to like, okay, I can learn the cuts. But like there was a bunch of French terminology. And I remember how my parents and my family would cook food. It was just cut it any way they wanted and toss it into a pot and it was delicious. So I dropped out of culinary school and I just worked in restaurants and I studied business, hotel management, bunch of night courses and now we're here. Hmm. How is the approach that the instructors and students there um, uh, have that was different from what you learned growing up? Everything was like, if you get a job interview, you got to learn how to cut an onion. You got to cut an onion like this. And if you don't cut it like this, you won't get hired. It was all exclusive to me. There was no indigenous representation. And I've always wondered, I'm like, where's the, where's the Nietzsche teachers, you know, 
where are these professors where where are the where are the indigenous students yeah your school was on the land eh yeah <laughs> that's all like it was on the land hands on and just love and laughter and eating good food mhm and you are now uh the chef and owner of a well-regarded food company Pipisco, uh, how do memories and time with family inspire your food? They're everything. I think the stories really connect the dishes with the, the the audience, right? When they sit down and they hear the story of this food, and if it's like elders, they'll they'll eat this dish. And like I had an elder tell me, like, "Thank you, you brought me back to my childhood with my mushum." I think that is a very powerful impact on anyone, especially that age. Mm. Being able to have an elder just spark a memory, you know, of being out on the land eating tongue with corn mush. <laughs> Stuff like that like I never would have imagined myself being in this position today. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be in this position without those food memories. Yeah. This memory that you have um, of that elder telling you, um, you know, this takes me back to my, uh, you know, land and my mushroom and, and how they used to make food. How did that feel after he shared that, you know, you shared your food and then he shared his memory? How did that feel for you? I was in disbelief. I was taken back, right? Because this elder was stony, different nation, different people. But that relationship to food is strong with every Indigenous person. I still can't believe it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very powerful. Uh, medicine, maybe, uh, is the word I want to put there. When you cook for somebody and, and then they love you back for it, right? It's, it's, a, it's an experience. Um, you, your food, you've described as post-colonial cuisine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? Colonization has affected us, how we think, how we process stuff. Like we're relearning everything we've lost. And Pipisjo in itself is a journey for me still, like growing and learning as much as I can, learning from other people, being better every day as an employer, but also as a person. Really staying true to, to my stories, to what the food is, but also educating settlers on how indigenous food's not linear, right? I was a chef. I've been cooking in professional kitchens for 15 years. And what I do, I call it post-colonial because those 15 years, I was always cooking other people's food, but also I was learning, right? I'll take a dish and make a risotto. But for me, that brings me memories of rice, ocheshishak. Because my grandmother and my family would always make like a goose stew and then toss rice and it would be like a really thick stewed rice dish, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, when I would make risottos, I would bring me back to that place and time of just eating smoked goose with dirty rice. We call it dirty rice because the the stock is not like a French stock. It's just there's blood in it. There's it's really dark. It's rich. It's more flavorful than a classical stock. But that is like I take my 15 years of learning and I apply it to the dishes that we do today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why is your company called Pipisjo? Pipisjo means Robin in Omishkegwin. Pipisjo was a name given to me by my grandfather, Mushroom Louis Shishish. And it's, it's an emotional name for me. 
you know, as a kid, you think you're going to have your grandparents forever, right? Mm. So you don't really think about them getting old. So when we started catering for uh, for people, for organizations, uh, they couldn't write a checkout to just Scott Eiserhoff. It had to be a company. I didn't ask questions. So I was like, okay, just give me a, just give me a few days and I'll go register a name sat down with my wife and started talking about like what, what can we name this and Pippis Joe I just remembered like Pippis Joe like I'm like I'll call it Pippis Joe so Pippis Joe really honors that that storyline that my family you know the language having settlers just utter the word Pippis Joe that's that's like a like a learning learning opportunity you know learning the language yeah so Pippis Joe and, the, and why he gave me that name was when I would be in Atawapskit, I would do nothing but just talk and ask questions and be very inquisitive, you know. And back home, like Pippis Joe, they're messengers, messengers of spring. They awaken the trees, nature, you know. And for me, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hear me not just be silent. I would just be talking like, oh, Scott's here. That's a perfect name. I love it. <laughs> uh, and since, you know, launching your company, you've been very busy uh, ever since. So what explains uh, Pippis Joe's success? So we partnered up the, with the Whiskey Jack Art House here in Edmonton. And since opening up, like we've just we've outgrown the kitchen within like four months. And then I was like, oh, let's open up a takeout. Next thing I realized, we won Best New Restaurant of 2022. No, 2023. Wait, I'm getting my years mixed up. <laughs> 2022, best new restaurant of 2022. 30, top 30 best new restaurants by En Route Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, how did that happen? I don't know how that happened because we were a takeout at the time. But also like the success of Pippa Show, we were able to bring on other folks, higher indigenous folks. Our, one of our managers is from Haida Gwaii. We had a 15-year-old student that we hired last year. Yeah, I think Pippis Joe, like, we need more Indigenous restaurants. We need more Indigenous representation because spaces that us as us Indigenous people create are safer for Indigenous people, like Indigenous students, you know. You can come as you are if you're two-spirited or if, you're, if you identify as something that you want to identify as, like, well, we accept it. I always say this, like, my younger self would be looking at myself and be so proud. Mm. Because when I was a young chef, I was always wondering, like, where are all these indigenous chefs? I want to learn from an indigenous person. I want to learn our traditional foods, not starting from scratch. That was always on my mind. And then, like, when I had employment, like, there would always be something racial that would happen. And then I would quit and move on to the next job. But as Pippis Joe, we can nip that in the butt. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good environment to be in, to enjoy some good food. And I heard, uh, maybe a little birdie told me, I don't know, that you have some news about your, your restaurant's new location. Where can Edmontonians now find Pippis Joe? Yeah, we closed our location down and we're expanding to a location that's downtown on Jasper Ave. I don't want to give too much details out, but... The restaurant is going to be in honor of my grandparents. I'll, I'll give you the name. It's going to be called Bernadette's after my kuchum. Mm. It's a huge win for us, I think. 
because I, whenever I do like speeches to, I always talk about like, why, why aren't there indigenous businesses in the city center, like downtown with a lot of foot traffic, you know? And I was like, I, I would love to see the day when that happens. And now we're doing it. I didn't think it was going to be us, but <laughs> it, it, it is us. And I'm, it's been a blessing. I'm very happy to be doing it, having this opportunity. And I'm very honored to be doing this, walking this path. Yeah. Yeah. What is your hope for, you know, indigenous cuisine uh, and, you know, indigenous chefs down the road five, ten years from now? What do you, what do you envision? What do you want to manifest? What I want to manifest? Uh, <laughs> I want to see more indigenous representation. I want to see opportunity created for indigenous people res kids you know i want to show that there is opportunity out there for you that you matter that your voice matters that you're loved you know there is opportunities for you whether you think that there there are none there are i don't know i just want to be that beacon you know mm. to start something like a seed and i want to watch it grow well, that's a good dream to have, and I'm sure that you're well on your way in making that true. I'm sure that I will um, see little res kids watching you like you watch David Wolfman on TV. <laughs> that, that is the dream. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Scott Eiserhoff is a Cree chef who grew up in Timmins, Ontario, but has family roots in Attawapiskat. He's the owner of Papischow, a food and education company in Edmonton, and soon to open Bernadette's. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Oglala Lakota chef Sean Sherman is on a mission. Growing up, he didn't see a lot of traditional food on his plate, but now the industry leader is striving to return the food systems of his ancestors, both on the plate and on the food scene. Sean has been a guest on the show before. We talked about his plans to open a restaurant and training center. That has since happened. And last year, his restaurant, Awamni, won Best New Restaurant in the United States at the James Beard Awards, also known as the Oscars of the food world. Sean, welcome back to Unreserved. Thanks for having me. Take me to where it all began. Where did your, you know, your early recipe memories begin? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, which um, you know, we grew up in the Great Plains, and it was very sandy. We also had the Badlands of South Dakota um, as part of our area. Like a lot of kids in the 80s, we were pretty latchkey because, you know, being raised by boomers meant we just got kicked outside until it was dark outside. And um, But I was the oldest, so I spent a lot of time cooking for myself and my, and my sister. And um, my mom moved us off the reservation just before high school, and I started working in restaurants in a touristy town in the Black Hills of South Dakota. 
And I continued working restaurants all through high school, college. And then I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota and just kept working restaurants. And I worked my way up into a chef career at a pretty young age and continued with that until I found this path. Just it was basically came from the realization of the complete absence of indigenous foods out there anywhere. It just sent me on a path to understand um, the food systems of my ancestry and what we're eating, what we're harvesting, what we use for fats and salts and sugars. And we're trading with other groups and all these things, you know, and then started actively just making modern indigenous foods. Mm. How much of your food was um, directly connected to the land around you as you were growing up? We had some things. We harvested some prairie turnips, wild that were called uh, we called timpsala, um, that are still growing out there on the Great Plains. We harvested a lot of choke cherries, and my grandmother would make big batches of wojapi out of that. So we had a few things. We hunted. You know, I, I think I got my first shotgun when I was about seven years old, and we had a lot of grouse and pheasants around us. But a lot of our foods came from the commodity food program in the U.S., which was the government food subsidy program. A lot of canned vegetables, canned fruits. Um, canned meats, powdered milk, you know, big giant gallon jugs of corn syrup. And that was a lot of our pantry too. Wow. And so how did you um, come to understand that these foods from the commodity were not indigenous and not, you know, tied to traditional um, eating habits? Well, luckily as a chef, as a young chef, um, I started working with a lot more healthy foods and nutritional foods and a lot of local and organic foods and just really focusing on making things from scratch and just looking at the really unhealthy food base that I was subjected to growing up and a lot of families still are because we still are relying on a lot of these government food programs um, to survive and it's just a very unhealthy base and it's a direct link to that that unhealthy food with very low in nutrition um, and why we could have upwards to 60% type 2 diabetes and massive amounts of obesity and lots of heart disease and all these other foodborne illnesses that just affect us because of our food access. Mm. You mentioned that you started working in the restaurant business pretty early at 13. What was your introduction to the to the biz? I worked for um, a themed steakhouse. Um, it was mm. called The Sluice. It was mining themed. We had a mining cart salad bar. And it was very basic. It was very uh, straight up um, American style food. So steaks and potatoes and, and things like that. I did take one summer where I worked for the U.S. Forest Service right out of high school. And uh, my job was a field surveyor. So I had to learn the names of all the plants and trees around the northern Black Hills, which uh, that education came in really handy later in life when I started looking at the world through an indigenous perspective and seeing so much plant diversity that could be used for food, for medicine, for crafting and, and all the things that we have a relationship um, with as Indigenous peoples. Mm, that's interesting that, you know, many people would say that's quite an unexpected career turn to go from the restaurant business to work as a field surveyor for the uh, United States Forest Service. When did you start realizing that this knowledge you had of the land had a place in, in your food scene? So I, you know, I worked a lot of regular jobs in the city and Minneapolis as a chef after one particularly kind of grueling job where I worked way too many hours and got a little burnt out as chefs do at some point in their career. I packed a bag and a guitar and moved down to a beach in Mexico. And I, as I was down there, there was a community called the Weechel that I became really curious about. And then um, something just clicked because I'd seen so much commonality between this indigenous community down there and what I grew up with uh, in the States. And, you know, we had a lot of in common 
common with uh, our arts and our mythologies and our storytelling and um, animals and plant spirit. I just kind of had an epiphany. So I just kind of saw this huge flash and I saw the, the path, the road of what to look for to, to start to reconnect with the plants, to start there. So I started reading a lot of books on ethnobotany and I moved from Mexico to Montana so I could be close to the mountains and close to the plains at the same time and started spending a lot of time outdoors. And um, after that, I moved to, back to Minnesota and I started actively putting together indigenous pantries and putting together indigenous meals using indigenous foods and creating the philosophy that we still use today, which was cutting colonial ingredients out to identify what are modern indigenous foods by removing things like wheat flour, cane sugar, dairy products, beef, pork, chicken. So we weren't doing any fry bread or bannock. We were just focused on wild foods, on native agricultural products with a lot of heirloom corns and beans and squash and, and uh, sunflowers and lots of wild game and birds and fish. And there was so much to play with, you know, as a chef, yeah. I just saw nothing but immense plant diversity and flavor. And, you know, I think there's so much room for creativity out there. Mm. And in, in traveling that road, that culinary road and finding that knowledge about plants and how to work with it and put it in your food and like decolonize food in a way, I suppose. Um, what was the, what was the landscape like at that time? What was that? Was the, was the industry open to, to that indigenizing foods and decolonizing the plate? I think that there was a lot of lessons. Um, there was a lot of questions. And so there was a lot of just talking about that from the beginning. I feel like we've gone way past that because there's a lot of amazing, talented native chefs out there nowadays. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see more native restaurants opening. And I think that the, it is um, starting to really take hold. And I just feel really lucky that we got to be a part of that movement from the very beginning. You know, when we were first working on the first cookbook, um, I feel like nobody really knew what we were what we were talking about then either. But that cookbook's obviously been um, really popular. And now we're working on the second cookbook. So we've come a long ways, you know, with this award-winning restaurant and this nonprofit vision that we're working on of expanding everywhere eventually. We're already moving into Montana next year, possibly Anchorage following that, maybe even Hawaii, but also places like where I grew up in South Dakota down in Oklahoma and eventually crossing colonial borders being up in Canada or down in Mexico or even beyond. So we have all these things that we that are taking hold and there's an immense amount of work to do. So I feel like we're just barely starting. Mm, yes. Well, you've come a long way since, you know, even since we last spoke. Um, in 2021, you opened Awamni, your restaurant in Minneapolis. Tell me a little bit about that. What kind of restaurant is it? So we opened up Awamni, which is right on the Mississippi River in downtown Minneapolis. There used to be a beautiful waterfall, which was the only waterfall on the Mississippi River. Um, but uh, the waterfall was called Awamni Yamni, which meant place of the falling, swirling water in the Dakota language. And the Dakota name for the Mississippi River was Hahawakpa, which meant river of the falls, which meant that exact spot. So the restaurant's literally overlooking the heart of the Mississippi for the Dakota people. And we just feel really lucky that this first restaurant got to be on this really sacred space and really retaking the name of what is now downtown Minneapolis by just utilizing the name Awamni. And we're just showcasing what, what's possible with modern indigenous foods. We use a lot of game like elk and antelope and venison and uh, um, bison, of course, and rabbit and um, ducks and geese and quails and lots of 
freshwater lake fish because we have 15,000 freshwater lakes around Minnesota. And we, mm. we do some recipes that might feature other regions, you know, so something might be the Pacific Northwest or Southern Mexico or the East Coast or uh, Northern Alaska or wherever we can find indigenous foods because we focus on it, purchasing from indigenous food producers first. And the restaurant's actually a part of our nonprofit because we're just using the restaurant as a tool because that's where the job creation lies because we have 120 employees there during the summertime. 70% of our staff identifies as indigenous. We're spending tens and tens of thousands of dollars on indigenous food products that go directly to indigenous food producers. And we're just creating a space where we can really make a big statement. So we've created this huge platform for non-indigenous people to learn more about um, indigenous foods and a place for indigenous peoples to be very proud of and to celebrate and to have a place where you can come in and see native foods and hear native music and see native staff and just feel feel good, you know. Yeah. And why is it important for you to to create that platform to not only showcase to non-indigenous eaters <laughs> um, the the beautifulness of our of our natural, you know, traditional foods, but also to bring in, you know, indigenous people to work on those platforms? Well, I mean, we should have normalized indigenous foods everywhere. Like we need mm-hmm. it in our tribal communities, especially, but there's no reason that some of our big capital cities shouldn't have native restaurants all over it. Because in the States, like we have food capitals of the world, like Manhattan or Chicago, and you can find food from all over the world, but nothing to represent the land that they're standing on. And that needs to change because there's indigenous peoples everywhere. There's so much amazing indigenous diversity and indigenous restaurants could really feature that. Uh, we also have um, what's called the Indigenous Food Lab based in Minneapolis, where we have our native market space. We're featuring over 40 different native food producers um, at the small market that we've built. We have a native classroom where we're just going to be teaching about all facets of indigenous focused education, which could be food and culinary and gardening and seed saving and wild foods and plant identification and medicines and crafting and language and everything that becomes indigenous um, and education to us. We also have a production kitchen to support all of these pieces and we're replicating that. So that's what we're moving into Montana and we're just going to keep expanding like that. Mm. And back to Owamni, what has the response been since you opened you opened your doors? Well, we've been sold out every single night since we opened in July of 21. So that's been pretty good because people always ask how they can get a reservation. And I just respond with, I don't know. I just grew up on one. (laughs) (laughs) What are are some of the things that people say after they've eaten? You know, it's good because it's healthy because of our philosophy of removing European colonial ingredients. And I feel like people come in there and they're pleasantly surprised at when you eat a when you eat an entire dinner at Awamni and you walk out of there full, like you don't feel bad. You feel actually really good. You feel energized, and that's how we should be feeling after we eat. Mm. Uh, now you mentioned this a little bit earlier about your food lab, um, and when we had you last on the show, you had dreams of opening uh, the training center and food lab. Now it's a reality. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you created with that. So we have the market space, like I said, um, which has a whole bunch of native food products that we're bringing in on the retail side. We have a small kitchen so people can order some light lunch because our our space is inside a multicultural food hall in in Minneapolis. We have our production kitchen. We process a lot of things like corn. Uh, We make a lot of nixtamalized corn, which we turn into hominy or masa. And we make a lot of fresh tortillas and things like that that we sell through the market. We've done a lot of food relief there. We uh, During the pandemic, we were serving 10,000 meals a week 
out of that small kitchen, sending food to nine out of 11 tribes across Minnesota. Um, we have um, licensing to be a small micro-sized co-packer. We just finished a project with another local native nonprofit, helping them to develop a baby food that they call Indigibaby. And they gave us a bunch of heirloom squash that they grew and we processed it, packaged, packaged it for them. Then we're you know taking that whole model and expanding and growing. Like I said, we're going to be moving into Montana next, um, creating another production kitchen, creating another classroom space to steward a lot more education um, and just creating more distribution points so we can keep moving food around us, you know, and we'll be moving into online and wholesale soon afterwards. And we're just going to be developing a lot of education. And we're just really excited for what the future holds for this model that's just going to keep growing. And how have you seen this work um, counter the impacts of colonization in indigenous communities? When we're talking about our philosophy around decolonization, um, you know, we're not pretending colonization didn't happen. You know, so colonization brings in a lot of land hoarding. It really focuses on individualism. It really dehumanizes uh, other people, especially people of color. Um, and it really kind of sets its own tone for capitalism, you know, whereas indigenous communities, they're, you know, historically were community-based food systems. Um, there was a lot of sharing. There was a lot of respect for elders. There's a lot of respect and relationship building with plants and animals around us. And we just had a different way of looking at the world. And I think we need to start to implement that because we're going through a lot of climate change. We're going to be facing a lot of water shortages in many different areas. And we just have to be smarter humans. And the best way to do that is to see the follies of colonization and capitalism and really look to indigenous communities who had survived for countless generations utilizing the world around them in a very organic and respectful fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you hope to continue to influence the culinary world with your work? What would you want to see change right away so that you can get this sort of moving down the line? Well, we're seeing a lot of great movement and obviously a lot of the attention I get as a chef helps us open up more doors and we're just happy to be kicking down these doors for the next generation to come around, you know, and to have an easier time to get there than than what I had to go through because I'm turning 50 in a couple of months and I feel like there could be some younger kids like getting into this that could do a lot more and make this bigger and better than I can in my lifetime. So I feel like I have a few good years in my life to really do this work and I just want to keep opening as many doors as possible for the next generation. Mm. Sean, thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Sean Sherman is a chef and author. He's a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. Today, how food is a powerful carrier of culture. Métis chef Patrick Anderson doesn't just create indigenous cuisine, he creates community. Patrick is an instructor in the Indigenous Culinary Program at Red River College in Winnipeg. He helps chefs-to-be find pride in their community's traditions by teaching them about the ingredients growing all around them. He hopes by passing on this knowledge, they carry it back home and create their own communities. Patrick, welcome to Unreserved. Thank you for having me. Tell me about um, what your earliest memories of food and cooking are. You know, that goes back to being a small kid. We grew up on uh, a larger piece of land just outside the city. My dad wanted to buy a big plot of land. So back in the 80s, he, he bought about 10 acres just outside of Oak Bank, Manitoba. We had a massive fire pit out there and I can remember him cooking bannock over the fire 
he would have chili going in the stove and we'd sit around the fire on hay bales and we'd we'd eat this roasted bannock and this beautiful chili that he made and nowadays when I start making the chili I put all the spices in there I, I'm taken back to the farmland um, and it just brings that sense of comfort to me another example is my grandfather who lives in Thunder Bay we would see him a few times throughout the year and when he would come him and I we would wake up early and he would make me a, an incredibly gourmet dish which was a piece of white bread with an egg fried in the middle lots of salt and pepper and a little bit of ketchup on top mm. um, very simple but even nowadays when I take that first bite out of that I'm taken back to when he was still with us and it's a it's a beautiful way of remembering those we've lost or even those that are kind of far away from us at a certain time. But I've always kind of associated different dishes with people in my life. And I find it a beautiful way to remember them. That is a beautiful way to remember them. Thank you for sharing those memories. For sure. And what inspired you to become a chef? Yeah, I went to high school right across the street from a diner. And every day at lunch, me and my friends, we would go there and we'd get a poutine. Um, and I got to know the people that owned the restaurant quite well, this Greek family. And I would watch them interact with everybody in the community. And there was something that drew me to that sense of family outside of your family. Mm -hmm. And that's what drew me into culinary initially. And as I learned more and more about being a chef, I've always held that near and dear. Because that's what I try to tell my students is you don't have to go work in the best restaurants in the world, in, in, in Winnipeg. You can go back to your home community and you can set up a small, you know, eggs and bacon kind of thing for the folks in your home community just as a gathering place, a place to just talk and share ideas and stories and bring people together. Mm. This this idea of community, building community around food seems, you know, something that's really important to you. Why do you think it's important to include community when you're talking about cooking for, you know, being a chef or cooking for a community? Community is, is so important in so many ways. You know, we all have um, tough times, I guess, um, things that pull us away. And a, a good example of that was, I guess, the COVID pandemic, you know, when we were so separated from each other and we started to feel divisive. But I think food is the best way to bring people together to remind us that we're all in this together. Mm, absolutely. And now uh, you teach in the Indigenous Culinary Program at Red River College in Winnipeg, also mm -hmm. my alma mater. What does this program look like? Through an immense amount of research with our um, uh, Indigenous advisors about what is the best way to teach Indigenous students? It does look a little bit differently than your typical university or typical college because of the traditional Indigenous ways of learning. Um, not every student responds very well to a written research paper or a quiz where you get one try on it because a traditional Indigenous teaching method is trial and error. Um, a good example my elder teaches, taught me was the, the kukum or the grandmother, when they're teaching someone how to bead, if they don't get it right the first time, they don't stop. Mm -hmm. You keep learning over and over, and it's a process. So that's what we try to do with our quizzes and our tests. You know, we give them a few tries to get it right. 
because that's what life represents, you know, and everything. You don't just get one try to prove that you're good at it. We're hopefully going to meet our students in the middle with their preferred learning style mm -hmm. and then allowing them multiple forms of submission with many different attempts to be successful. We also have a traditional teachings course where we learn about traditional medicines, traditional plants, uh, harvesting protocols, hunting protocols. And then since we want them to learn how to cater events, we teach them what is the proper way to cater traditional ceremonies. What are the Sundance folks needing during the Sundance? How do we cater a powwow? Um, what kind of food are people looking for after they come out of the sweat lodge? That represents our culture. Um, so that's kind of the course in a quick nutshell. That sounds amazing. Sign me up. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. And how does this make a difference in how and how the students, you know, many of them from small communities, uh, how, how did they react to it? How does it help them? I think it helps them uh, because they feel represented. Mm -hmm. um, I do have an assignment I give the students called Eating the Weeds. And I ask the students to find a weed in their home community that typically society has painted as something you just cut and throw away. But I want them to do research into if it has any medicinal benefits. Have you ever heard of it being on a menu before? And then think outside the box on how you could use this on a modern menu. So when they come to our program, they realize that these things that society hasn't really used that grow in my community can be utilized. And they start to think they might have not a leg up on the competition, but a pathway that hasn't been tapped into before, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Could you share an example of what one of your students did with this eating weeds assignment? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the little pineapple weeds that grow all over between the cracks of the cement on the sides of the highways. If you pick the berries of them, they have a nice sweet flavor. So people have used that in different teas. They've infused it in ice creams, actually. You can make a, a custard out of that. Um, some students have shown me examples of using bulrushes. When the bulrush is really young, the inside core, I guess, um, when you peel the husk off, you boil it, season it, and then you give it a little roast on a grill, it, it resembles corn quite nicely. When they do this assignment and, and discover, you know, all of the things that perhaps our ancestors had been um, cooking with and creating meals with, um, how did they react? Very positively. Um, I guess some people ask me what is Indigenous cuisine a lot mm -hmm. because they don't really know. They think bannock and smoked meat. But... Every student, if I have a Diné student, if I have an Anishinaabe, if I have Cree, even Northern Cree, Indigenous cuisine looks different to each one of them. And me being Métis, it's very different compared to Anishinaabe, mm -hmm. you know. So I try to let them know that you're going to make a cuisine that's never been tapped into before because it represents your past, your ancestors' past, your parents' past, and it's connecting to the generations ahead of us. So they're seeing a pathway because they say, well, this plant has grown in my community for hundreds of years. It's foreseeable going to be growing there for another hundred years. It's a connection to the generations. And I think that's what's really making them feel motivated. Mm. How do you think that helps your students connect with each other? Great question. Food, like I said, connects us all together. We have 
very shy students, typically, in the Indigenous program. Um, they're, they're unfamiliar with a post-secondary setting, usually. So they come in excited, but shy. And within a week or so, they start talking about ingredients, start talking about, well, my uncle is a hunter and we have moose meat and we have deer meat. Uh, I'm a fisher, you know. And all of a sudden they are connected with a complete stranger by what lives and grows in their community. And instantly they feel a sense of belonging. Yeah. Yeah, that's important, right? To create that sort of community in your classroom. For sure. Mm -hmm. And you've said that yeah. you've calling that an indigenous culinary revolution. <laughs> what what does this yes, mean? Yes, I, I have used that before. Um, we our program is about six years old now, and in Winnipeg we have fantastic indigenous restaurants. We have Feast Bistro, we have the Bistro in Notre Dame, we have Shelley's Bistro. Um, the Wyndham Garden just opened up uh, last year, a place called Monoman. And I believe there, are, there is an indigenous food truck that the name is escaping me at this moment. But we have about six, six restaurants. Um, and in my first year, we graduated two students. In the second year, we graduated four and then seven. And now we're about to graduate 12. So we are putting more and more indigenous cooks out into the industry who are getting fantastic opportunities to learn and grow from established Indigenous chefs. And the one part that makes me really happy is um, we have historically seen Indigenous cooks off the street not get hired as much as we would like to see. Um, but now we have more and more Indigenous cooks in positions of hiring. My cooks, when they go into the industry, they're going to be sous chefs. They're going to be responsible for hiring. And they're going to give Indigenous cooks off the street with no experience the benefit of the doubt. And they're going to hire them and they're going to give them that opportunity. So that's why I think the revolution is, is upon us, because we're bringing our flavors back to the forefront and we're giving more opportunities to people who haven't been to culinary school, who just want to learn how to cook. And when you talk to your students about, um, you know, the Indigenous culinary revolution, uh, what do you tell them about what their place is in this revolution? I don't want to tell them it's your responsibility to hire this person or to make this kind of food. Um, but I do think they have a responsibility to tap into who they are as an individual, as uh, an Indigenous person, and carve out their specific path. And where do you see the revolution, uh, the Indigenous culinary revolution, as you say? Where do you see it going in, in the coming years, five, ten years from now? I see uh, no less than double the amount of restaurants that we have right now um, in Winnipeg. I see dozens and dozens of indigenous sous chefs, which is, in my opinion, one of the most important positions in the kitchen because the chef has a lot of duties outside of the kitchen to take care of, but you are the, the captain of the kitchen. Mm. You're the one that helps or organizes all the specials, you know? We're going to see more and more Indigenous-inspired specials, more dishes, and the average diner is going to be more accustomed to seeing these traditional ingredients on these menus. And most of our traditional ingredients are quite healthy, are, are quite good for you. You know, these naturally grown plant-based ingredients, these hormone-free, antibiotic-free proteins, they're going to make their way onto menus. And ideally... 
we're going to have a healthier dining experience coming forth when we have Indigenous cooks at the helm. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for your time today, Patrick. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Patrick Anderson is a Métis chef and culinary instructor at Red River College in Winnipeg. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Laura Bonestubing, Rhiannon Johnson, Kim Kasher, and Danielle Piper. Find more on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved, on the CBC Listen app, or your favorite places to pod. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. I go say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.